0: Hello and welcome to the Freight Find Podcast, your source for all things freight transportation. I'm Chris Kaplis, Chief Scientist at DAT Freight and Analytics, and today I'm joined by Adam Bodenbach. He's the Director of Fleet Engineering and Sustainability for PepsiCo. Adam has a real long history with trucking, earning his CDL and driving produce during the summers while in college, to being a mechanic, to running fleet operations for several different companies. In his current role, he's leading the adoption of sustainable transportation at PepsiCo. This is in line with PepsiCo's overall commitment to reach net zero carbon emissions by 2040 and to reduce Scope 1 and 2 emissions by 75% by 2030. And in our conversation, we discussed the challenges of converting a fleet from combustion engines to electric vehicles, as well as the many positive benefits. This is a great lesson for all shippers to learn because the conversion to more sustainable transportation is only going to continue and pick up. Following my conversation with Adam, I'll discuss the truckload market update. So let's get started. Before we start the conversation, let me update you all on some upcoming events for both DAT and myself. Starting on 5 to 7 February, DAT will be at Manifest in Las Vegas. I'll be on a panel with a great group of shippers discussing the future of transportation procurement, and DAT will have a booth, number 1315, for you to visit and chat with us. On March 5th, I'll be moderating a different yet still very great panel of shippers on the same topic of transportation procurement at the annual Food Shippers of America conference in Orlando. If you are attending either of these shows, please let me know and we can connect. Okay, on with the rest of the podcast. Hi, Adam. Welcome to the Freight Find podcast. Thanks for having
1: me, Chris. Appreciate being here.
0: Yeah, this is, uh, this is good. I, I know last time you were up at MIT was about, gosh, six months to a year ago. And you were up and you were talking about what you're working on with the electric vehicle adoption at uh, PepsiCo, and I was intrigued. And so over the last couple episodes, I've been talking about different aspects of the adoption or integration of EVs into freight networks, and it seemed like it made sense to talk with you. So tell me a little bit about your current role at PepsiCo.
1: So, today at PepsiCo, I get to lead our North American Fleet Center of Excellence, focusing on our engineering and design efforts that prioritize safety, capability, reliability, and efficiency of our fleet. In addition, we're focused on our PepsiCo positive transformation that focuses on positive agriculture, positive value chain, and positive choices in our products. Um, what that includes and what that means for our team is we have a net a 2040 goal of getting to net zero emissions across our supply chain and a goal in 2030 of reducing our emissions on our scope one and two by 75% and our scope three emissions by 40%. Is that
0: PepsiCo wide? Yes. The 75% and what was the, the date for that for scope one and two, 75% reduction? Is by 2030. 2030. So
1: what you work on though is fleet. So that would be considered scope two, right? So for all of our private fleet that we own and operate, that's going to fall under scope one. And then for scope two, that'll be the electricity that we use to power those vehicles.
0: Okay. And then the scope three is if um, you're corporate. So if someone uh, is buying middle mile for for higher transportation, right? That'd be be separate.
1: Okay. Exactly. So in addition to decarbonizing our own private fleet, we're looking to help our, our suppliers and partner carriers that also move freight for us decarbonize as well. And we've set a target for that portion of our business at 40%. Yeah. That's
0: that's a whole other conversation. We'll we'll, we'll save that one for another day because that's one that's, uh, that is a tough one to fix. Scope threes are the really hard ones, but you're focused on mainly scope one and scope two now, and it's for your fleet. So help me understand when you say fleet, is that middle mile stuff or is that mainly last mile
1: distribution, direct store delivery? Where does it fit within the whole freight network? So that includes both. So we have a little bit of a little over 80,000 assets here in North America, the majority of those being in last mile direct store delivery operations. But that does also include a lot of our over the road or regional haul middle mile assets, which are going to be a more traditional class eight tractor trailers. And do those middle miles, are they on
0: more random lanes or are they on pretty steady state lanes like vendor to, to manufacturing plant, manufacturing plant to DC? How, how would you characterize? the middle mile moves?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So for us, the majority of our middle mile operations are the transportation of our finished goods from manufacturing to a distribution center. So similar to a hub and spoke model, that manufacturing, you from manufacturing to, to distribution center is going to be the middle mile portion of our business. Is that your distribution center or is that mainly a customer's? Primarily our distribution center, but it could include a customer as well.
0: Yeah, because uh, I mean, PepsiCo Frito is well known for having uh, very high percentage DSD direct store delivery, right? It's a, it's a competitive advantage. But let's let's go back to you for a little bit. Why are you in this role? Can you tell us a little bit about your career? How you ended up electrifying PepsiCo?
1: Absolutely. So uh, I actually began my career in trucking back when I was eighteen. I uh, went got my CDL my freshman year of college, and my first really? summer job was driving trucks in California. Hauling ag produce during the summers,
0: so you could do that. I thought you
1: couldn't get a CDL to your twenty one. Is that interstate versus intrastate? Exactly. So intrastate, as long as you know, at least as far as I still know, is intrastate. You can be eighteen, uh, and then once you turn twenty one, you can commence in interstate. So did did you drive that all through college? I did. So I did that for four summers in a row. During the summer, I'd go drive and haul produce in the California Central Valley. And then go back to school in the fall. And, and that's really what kicked off my career into trucking. And you
0: still came into the trucking industry after doing it for four summers. Wow. So were you driving uh, class eight vehicles or were they smaller?
1: Yep. All class eight vehicles, hauling doubles, primarily uh, moving tomatoes to the California Central Valley.
0: I think, I, I don't have my CDL, but I've seen, I've done drive-arounds with different drivers, and uh, the skill that it takes to see people backing into tight spaces still amazes me. But hauling doubles, were those like 220s? Oh, gosh. They were, you weren't hauling double, I mean, on West, West Coast is different, right? Rocky Mountains triples and things like that.
1: Yeah, not Rocky Mountain doubles. These were probably 20 or 26-foot doubles. Okay, okay, wow. Well, that's a whole thing I didn't know about. So- After
0: you finished college, what did you do?
1: Um, So I went to grad school at Texas A&M right after my undergrad and actually drove trucks there for a little bit as well. Uh, Worked as a mechanic part-time. Always loved the industry and the hands-on aspect of it. Uh, And then that really launched me in my first career role where I joined a startup in the utility industry. And they had a supply chain distribution problem is they would buy a lot of used equipment and remanufacture it. And so we then had to pick up used equipment and then deliver it to customers. And so we launched a specialized over the road, heavy haul fleet. And so we did long haul tractor trailers that had low boys and RGNs and moved a lot of big construction equipment and utility type equipment all across the U.S. Uh, And then we grew that company. We ended up selling it to Blackstone at the time. Uh, Stayed on with the new organization for a couple of years uh, and then moved into more fleet management with uh, Brinks armored trucks doing their logistics for them. Uh, and then eventually coming to PepsiCo. Okay, so
0: that's a that's a so so your main it, it's transportation, but with the utility, were you involved with electrification for that? Or it was just you were moving products that happened to be in utilities.
1: So we we were just moving products for the utilities. Okay. So Okay. Bucket trucks and off-road equipment and dirt equipment um, was our primary focus. So you
0: were you were a diesel guy, yes, driving right all diesel. So were you surprised with the adoption of electric? Or did you, did you think diesel would make sense? Was there any hesitancy um, from your perspective of being a driver in the past?
1: Oh, uh, yeah. So, I mean, I, I'd say, you know, hit, you know, in the past, I remember when Super Single first came around, and there's a lot of hesitancy towards that. And I think it was a, you know, hesitancy towards change and something new and different. Right. I think over my 20 years in the industry, I've become a little bit more familiar with kind of the, you know, the change aspect of the industry and what's expected. And so as EVs started to come around, PepsiCo has been an early adopter in EVs. Uh, back in 2010, they launched 300 Smith Electric EV vehicles. And so I think that really gave PepsiCo their first look into the capability of an EV, what it can and can't do, what change management is required in the operations of it. Uh, and I think when we you know, got a good understanding of what it is, as we've seen the technology and the costs evolve over the past decade, uh, I think we're just at a, a you know, fletching point in the industry where it's, it's right to see a lot more adoption when it comes to some of these zero emission vehicles. So Pepsi's
0: early adoption, was that mainly in last mile delivery DSD day day
1: trips? Exactly. Yeah. When we started out in 2010, it was a, uh, class six commercial box trucks, all operating, you know, direct store delivery. I think at the time those vehicles had about a 50 mile range. So really close from our distribution center, last mile to our large format stores and back. But they fit that duty cycle really well, especially in large urban environments. 50 mile range? Yes. You're kidding. Wow. Wow. Are any of those
0: still in, in, in use?
1: Uh, those are not for us. So we, uh, when I first joined PepsiCo, we did have uh, probably about 200 still in service out on the West Coast. 50 miles. Yeah, today, no long, those are no longer in service today. So so if I look at,
0: uh, if you have a, we'll talk more about how this goes about the uh, how you adopt and everything, but what would the range be now for a typical class six store uh, truck that would be replacing one of these, that would be doing local delivery to stores? What would the range be?
1: So we, we've seen a lot of variability from the OEMs on what class six okay. box truck range is. For us, we have a lot of routes that are under 100 miles a day, and these vehicles return to base, the depot charge, they're based at the distribution center, they go out early in the morning, they do up to 100 miles, they then return to base, and they sit for about 12 hours, and so we have a long time to charge these vehicles overnight as well.
0: That's really interesting. So do you think that the battery doesn't need to be as strong as it
1: is? For us, that's one thing we definitely look at is right-sizing the battery to the vehicle in the duty cycle- um, so we do try to fit, you know, find a, you know, if we if we have a route that's only 50 miles a day, maybe it's an 80 mile, you know, battery is what we need to make sure we have some resiliency if there is a additional stop or if there are some geography or weather changes that could impact range. Uh, but for the most part, we do try to find the right vehicle for the duty cycle, specifically okay. when it comes to battery range.
0: So for these for these local delivery kind of vehicles give us a rough range for the number of stops they typically have is it is it in onesie twosies dozens what what is the rough number range
1: yeah i'd say our last mile direct store delivery operations are typically about a 10 to 12 stop per day operation
0: okay and so that makes sense why the distance is not as as big as you would think okay so is it safe to say most of the adoption is occurring in that part of the freight network the last mile distribution
1: so, so far, I think a lot of it has. For us, last year in 2023, to lay announced that they deployed over 700 EVs with the majority of those uh, operating in our last mile direct store delivery.
0: Sure. And do you find, I'm just curious, do you find any driver pushback to switch from combustion engine to, to
1: EV? I think every side we've gone to has always been a little bit different. There's been some hesitancy at first. There's been some excitement and some hesitancy. Uh, But once we get the drivers in there and they get used to the vehicles and used to that one pedal driving uh, and the additional, you know, sensors and safety features on the vehicle, the overall feedback we've gotten from the drivers has been very positive. And I'd say it's harder to get them out of that
0: vehicle. Once they're in. Yep. We did a project with a paper office supply store, I guess, uh, years ago, years ago. And they had the exact same thing. Drivers didn't want to do it. But once they're in there, you couldn't pull them away because it's quiet it's much cleaner. It's easy. It's just easier. So tell me about how do you go to integrate, to adopt this? Do you do facility by
1: facility or how do you
0: roll this out? Or what are the, what are the plans? What is the strategy
1: for doing that? Yeah. So we've historically tried to map out a lot of our routes and duty cycles where we can deploy EVs and they best fit our operations. And then, you know, step one is to, to look at several different factors. And so we actually built a model that looked at things like geography, route duty cycle, climate. Uh, and then we tried to optimize where we went first. Uh, one of the things that we learned very quickly and early on was that we can have a great plan, but depending on the utility and how much power is available, can really dictate how quickly we can go to those locations. So what we started out with, you know, hey, we think we're going to start out and be these locations. Uh, About half them, we might have said, hey, you know, utility said to come back in two years. It's going to require this amount of time to get the additional power infrastructure needed. Uh, and so that's driven a lot of our decision making. Um, but overall, a large you know, percentage of our operations are a good fit for electrification. So when you roll out, is it facility
0: by facility? So you have a distribution center that's serving us, what, a metropolitan area? Do you go 100% conversion all at once? Do you try to put in like 20% at a time and ramp it up? How do you go from 100% combustion to, I don't know, do you go to 100% EV or do you always like to keep a mix?
1: Yeah. So I think we done a little bit of both historically. In the past, we traditionally would go in and be a smaller percentage of the site that gets electrified. I think with some of the learnings we've gained over the years is we feel more confident now in, in understanding the process and what it entails to really do that infrastructure construction. That we're better off served going in one time and at least laying the groundwork and foundation one time to electrify the entire site and then we can come back in and even if we electrify the entire site it might just mean putting condo in the ground everywhere and putting in 50 percent of the charges and then starting with you know we try to get one to two meetings out early to do training and driver adoption and uh, and get drivers familiar with what is coming and then it might be a phase in of, you know, 25% of the fleet and then 50% of the fleet. And we still might have, you know, 25 or 50% of the routes that exceed the range of, you know, what the what the trucks are that we're buying. And so it might be that, you know, we come back in a couple of years as range gets better on the vehicles and finish out the second half of that site. Uh, but when it does come to infrastructure, we do try to do the infrastructure all at once. And then the EV deployments. We try to do as many as we can that fit the duty cycle of that distribution center got it so it's it's essentially
0: i don't know when you were you you were up here at mit for a little while did you ever take anything in real options because that's what you're describing so you you build out totally at least the foundation work but you're flexible if you need to add on is that that is that what you that makes a ton of sense so let me just ask some basic questions what geographies in the United States are amenable to this and what are not?
1: I think we've seen a lot of early adoption in California because of the geography, because of the you know the operating environment out there. Uh, we've seen a lot of adoption occur there early on. However, we've also had deployments in Texas, in Charlotte, North Carolina, in Queens, okay. New York. So we are trying to test in multiple geographies across the U.S. Uh, and prove out that EVs do fit multiple duty sites. So
0: essentially, do you think EVs will be 100%? I mean, the, the idea that it'll be a majority at some point, is that the long-term goal? I'm not asking you for timetables, but is, is it your personal opinion that this will eventually be all EVs? Or do you think there are some regions, I'm, th- I'm in New Hampshire right now, I'm thinking New
1: Hampshire, EVs, winter, we just got eight inches of snow, I don't know. What do you think? That's a good question. And I think that EVs will definitely be probably the key component of our decarbonization strategy. Got it. We're going to deal with puts us on a a pathway towards our 2040 goal of net zero emissions, whether that's 100% EVs or whether that's a large percentage of EVs and then a percentage of alternative fuel vehicles to help complement our EV strategy. How much of a
0: a factor are regulatory issues having with this? Is that having any issue for this? I know for autonomous vehicles it's a big issue is it that big of an issue for electric electrification
1: so the regulations are definitely changing um every day it feels like so we're trying to stay close to what those changes are in the market Uh, for us our goals will most likely exceed a lot of those regulations so we're making sure we do stay in compliance where there are regulations requiring zero emission vehicles but working towards our larger strategy of net zero
0: yeah, so the the only state that I know is California right now, mainly for drayage. Is that uh does that also apply for a local delivery? Do you have to be a hundred percent EV as of January twenty twenty four? I know drayage has to be in and out of ports. Did that go for last mile too? I, I'm I'm no, claiming no, ignorance here.
1: Yeah, I I don't believe so. So there's a, a lot okay. of I don't think there's anything like the drayage rule. I think there are some leading more localized requirements, you know, that can get yep. that but a lot of ports in California have had those dredge requirements for a while, um, uh, for zero emission or alternative fuel vehicles. I haven't seen anything at least like their, you know, full blown requirement for zero emission vehicles, right? However, right. With things like ACT and ACF, um, under CARB coming on this year, as well as other states, that are looking to adopt ACT as well. So explain, explain just what, what ACF and ACT are. Okay. So, when we see, uh, <laughs> so for carbs, some of the changing regulations that we've kept an eye on this year include CARB's omnibus, which is the actual emissions associated with the diesel engine. Uh, they also have ACT, which is the Advanced Clean Truck Rule, and ACF, which is the Advanced Clean Fleet Rule. And so ACT helps regulate the OEM selling vehicles and the minimum percentage of EVs they have to sell into those states. And then for ACF, that's the percentage of EVs that fleets need to maintain under that regulation as well. Yeah. And that's, as far as I know, that's still only California. So for ACF, it's only California, but there are other states. I believe it's New Jersey, New York, Massachusetts, Washington, and Oregon are adopting ACT in 2025.
0: Okay. So you eventually this will probably roll out. As goes California, sadly, goes the rest of the country after a certain point. So let me ask about customers. Do customers care? Your retailers that you're delivering to, do they have a preference? I assume this helps them in their scope three emissions.
1: Exactly. I think our our scope one emissions do impact our customer's scope three emissions. And so I think we're starting to see more and more of that, at least the questions asked from our customers. And I think there's some additional benefits as well because the vehicles are quieter, um, potentially being able to deliver earlier into certain cities that might have a noise ordinance. Um, So I think there's some additional benefits uh, in addition to decarbonization, uh, just operationally that fit well with our customers. (laughs) Okay. And so let me go back to
0: the utilities because it's really fascinating that that's one of the gating factors that you have for adopting. So if I have a facility that's serving, I don't know, I'm just going to make it up, serving a part of Chicago. And so you have a lot of fleet going out from that. How do you go about approaching the utility, or have you already reached out to all utilities? Is this something that they're expecting, or is this something that's a surprise? Is this something that, uh, give us an idea of the scale. Is this like introducing a 1,000 houses to the network? How, how, how do you go about doing that with the utility?
1: Yeah, so that's a great question. So in the U.S., there's over 3,000 different utilities. Oh, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> So I think the the going moniker that I've heard is that if you've talked to one utility, you've talked to one utility. Uh, There are a lot of differences between utilities and the way that, you know, they operate you're working with them. So we do try to get out and, and speak to them early and we try to come with data. So, you know, that communication usually starts with we have a distribution center here or we have a manufacturing site here. We're looking at electrification and this could impact the amount of demand power we need from the grid. And so the first is you know, how much power is available, um, sharing with them a lot of our route data. So how many miles do we do? How does that equate to the amount of kilowatts that we need to pull off the grid at a single time and throughout the day? Uh, and then I think based on that, you know, we work with them to find uh, the total amount of power that we'll need, uh, the best way to set up our charging infrastructure so that we can deploy EVs at a broad scale.
0: So let me get a rough scale, see if you can do this for me. If I bring on, I don't know, 50 trucks, 50 uh, last mile delivery that are going to go routes that are anywhere like 100 miles a day, do you have any sense what that's equivalent to in terms of houses?
1: Yes. Yeah. So I can speak to, uh, not, I'm not sure in terms of houses, but I can at least speak to our say Modesto, our to lay Modesto facility. Got it. Um, we deployed 15 Tesla semis there with four chargers that charge at 750 kilowatt rate. And so we put in a three megawatt project for Modesto and that was for 15 vehicles. Uh, in Queens, New York, we're deploying about 60 E-transits in last mile direct store delivery. For 60 of those vehicles, we will need less than one megawatt.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. So we'll talk about the Tesla Semi in a second because that's that's more middle mile, right? That's a class eight size truck. What you talked about, you called them E-Transit. Those are like class six? So those are actually like a class 2B. So it's like a traditional white panel van. That's a van. Okay. Yes. Okay. I usually don't go that low in the classes. I'm, I'm used to six <laughs> or eight is from as low as I go. So that makes a ton of sense. So now this is just one company doing this. This is just PepsiCo. If every company does this, 10, 20, 30 companies... So are you are you finding um d- does the state of the United States electrical grid scare you or give you confidence?
1: I I think we definitely have a lot of opportunity when we look at where we want well <laughs> electrification. You're going to be a politician someday, Adam. We have uh, we're optimistic about
0: we have opportunities. That is awesome. That is great. But but seriously, and and I won't hold you to this, do you think cuz most companies um in the US have these net zero goals of some degree uh, the years whatever and to do that there's no other way for for distribution to go electric for some of their vehicles it seems to be the it seems to be making the most sense some of the other alternative fuels are out there i don't know if they're having as much traction we can talk about that but do you sense that the, with the current 3000 separate utilities that uh, we could achieve, I don't know, I'll just throw it out there, 80% adoption? Do you think there needs to be dramatic changes to the electric grid, or do you think that it's, this is already working and in process? This is just as an Adam perspective, not from Frito. I'm just curious. You're so much into this, and I think one of the big things, uh, someone who's not into this as much, Yeah, I, I would have thought that the challenge would be finding rolling stock, finding enough electric vehicles, getting those production out there. And that now, as I talk to more people, it's actually, no, it's, the, it's the network, it's the grid. It's just not set up for this. And so my, my thought is my challenge. My concern is that our appetite, our eyes are bigger than our stomach, right? We want to have everything electric, but my gosh, we still have rolling blackouts at different places. Uh, you're in Texas. You didn't have a good winter of 21, right? So, you know, yeah, it's, So the the question is, are we
1: getting ahead of ourselves or are you confident that we have opportunities to do better? In my opinion, I I think, you know, we need significant investments in additional energy period. I think energy over time is one thing where we've seen just consistent growth in. And I don't think that you go away. No, I don't think so. I think energy, we will always
0: consume more energy. It's just the question of how we produce it. I I know that, um, our coal production is way down. Natural gas is way up, which is much better for the environment. I don't know if the tide has turned for, a, for a nuclear, to be honest. I don't know. And that's another hot topic that we can blame Jackson Brown about uh, you know, getting us against nukes. But let's go back to another topic. Let's talk about Tesla Semi. You guys have some great press and you, about adopting a Tesla Semi, which is the class 8 EV that Tesla is making. Tell us a little bit about that. How did you come about adopting those and what's your experience been?
1: Yeah, so it started in uh, December of 2022. We were very excited to be the launch partner of the Tesla Semi with Tesla. And so we started out with 36 Tesla Semis. We deployed 21 of those at our Pepsi facility in Sacramento and 15 of those at our Frito-Lay facility in Modesto. Uh, Now the 15 in Modesto are all middle mile type operation. Yep. In Pepsi, Sacramento, we actually have three of those operating in a middle mile fashion and then 18 operating in a last mile direct store delivery operation. So getting a feeling for how they operate in both duty
0: cycles. So for the large class eight that's doing direct store delivery, is that like going to one of your major retail, is it going to a store, to a DC? Y-
1: yes, to a store. So we'll leave our oh, wow. Pepsi Sacramento facility and we might go to a large format grocery store uh, and deliver a full load of product. And so those vehicles might be less than a hundred miles a day and they might only charge one time a week. Wow. And so will
0: they do like two stops or is it a one stop? Is it a direct full truckload?
1: They'll typically do in, in our Pepsi side of the business, our direct store delivery operations. Um, they will still do about 10 to 12 stops, uh, at a combination of both large format grocery stores, as well as kind of our small format convenience stores. Um, so we're operating those vehicles just like we would any of their diesel car parts.
0: Huh. I, I, I'm, su- I'm surprised you'd be using Class 8 for those. They're just in some of the stores. But I guess you have some customers that take large shipments. I mean, we're delivering liquid. And so that could be pretty bulky. So before we we're recording, we were talking a little bit. And you mentioned the North American Council of Freight Efficiency. Um, tell us a little bit more about that and what your involvement is.
1: Yeah. So Pepsico has been a, a large partner and supporter of NACFI. NACFI has been around now for over a decade and is really focused on freight efficiency. And so not only we've we been a large, longtime partner with the organization, um, but about eight years ago, they launched their first run on less event where they looked at long distance over the road trucks and how to help improve freight efficiencies, so how to get better NPG. Uh, And so we participated in the over-road segment. Two years later, we showcased regional operations. Two years after that, in 2021, we showcased what it takes to run an electric vehicle. And we highlighted a class six electric box truck out of our Modesto facility. And then this past year, in 2023, uh, we showcased three of the Tesla semis during NACC's Run All Less event out of Sacramento. And we showed live data on how the Tesla semis were operating. So in one case, we have one semi do 1,076 miles in a single day, a slip seat operation with the ability to charge at a megawatt level. And so our goal is to really show the rest of the industry what the vehicles are capable of and help encourage adoption. Okay. So for the adoption
0: of, let's go back to the class six, even the class two Bs for those, the capital cost is always more expensive for the EVs. But I imagine the operating costs are lower because I had previous guys on, uh, Jim Filter from Schneider, who did a lot of the EV adoption for their drayage in California. And he was talking about how it's three to four X for a class eight more expensive than a combustion engine for class eight. And that, you know, if, if everything was cost-based, probably wouldn't be going to EV. So there's other factors. There's other reasons for doing
1: it. Correct. And so, a lot of things we do look at it is the total cost equation that goes into it. And so, I mean, you know how cost per mile works. You know the variables that go into it. You've got your capital investment, whether it's the cost of the truck or the cost of the truck right. infrastructure, and then your operating costs, whether it's you know the cost of the energy to power that vehicle, the driver, your insurance, all those other variables. Uh, and so, with electrification, I think on average we've seen a higher entrance on the capital upfront costs. Sure, and uh, you know, then we're we're optimistic that you know we'll see lower energy costs as well as lower maintenance costs on those vehicles, and then especially if you can convert enough of that lower operating expense to offset that increasing capital cost by doing enough miles, uh, I think there is you know an opportunity where in the future you could see a positive TCO on some of these vehicles. No, that makes that makes sense, but I'm I'm
0: curious. For for this, you mentioned the uh, the maintenance and everything. I imagine you, it's a different type of maintenance, right? Yes. You were were you a mechanic at any time? Were you a, your own mechanic for your when you're driving a truck?
1: I did. I worked as a mechanic part time when I was in grad school, more of a hobby than anything, um, but did work work part time. But that's it's very different set of skills now. I, I assume
0: so. If you have a facility that is seventy five percent EVs and twenty five percent combustion engine your maintenance or are you finding the mechanics can be trained cross-trained for
1: the ev or is that a separate skill yeah so we've we've definitely we have over a thousand technicians here in the u.s across both free delay and pepsi um so we have a very large technician base but we've had technicians since 2010 working on both evs as well as internal they can so it's it's not a yeah it's not a one or the other kind of thing correct we see a lot more on the diesel side moving towards electronics and computer diagnostics and remote diagnostics. That that's fair, and so it fits really well with what we've seen traditionally over diesels as they progressed in their maintenance requirements. I think EVs are going to fit in in a very similar fashion. But there are definitely some new things we have to learn, like high voltage, but in general, I think it's all part of you know our, our program and what we'll be able to adopt internally. Now, EVs tend to be a higher weight
0: than combustion engine. I know that's certainly for class eight, is that same for class two, class six?
1: Cause the battery. Correct. On average, I think across the segments, we've seen uh, battery electric vehicles tend to weigh more than internal combustion vehicles. Does that impact your
0: payload at all? Have you did you have to change your routes or your your delivery be,
1: to compensate for that? So it definitely does impact um, your payload available if the GVWR, the vehicle is staying the same and they weigh more than their internal combustion counterparts, you're going to lose some payload. When we look at our free delay side of the business, we tend to cube out before we payload out anyway. Right, right. So for us, that's a really, really good fit there. And even on our beverages side of the business, we've shown that that EVs are still capable of doing the job and moving the freight that we need. Uh, And during NACFE's Run All Less event, the data that we showcased over 65% of the loads that we tracked were over 75, over 70,000 pounds GVW. So battery electric trucks, I think, can also do that up to 82,000 weight and still be competitive
0: with an internal combustion engine. Yeah, and so with your product mix, you can certainly make that work as well. Let me ask one last stream of questions for this. Whenever people talk about EVs, they also talk about AVs. What can you say potentially about the adoption of autonomous vehicles within the Pepsi network? Is that something that is on the near planning or far planning or what What can you tell us about that?
1: When we look at autonomy, we look at the five different levels of autonomy, um, one through five. Right. For us, we've been primarily focused on level two, which is what we consider enhanced safety of the vehicle. And what that is is going from kind of our passive systems of lane departure warning to collision warning to more active lane keep assist, collision mitigation, and collision avoidance. Uh, I think there's been a lot of benefits from the AV industry and what they're doing that have started to make their way into what's real and on the road today, um, specifically with the enhancement of level two systems. And that's really where our focus has been, has been enhancing the safety of our drivers while they're in the vehicle.
0: Yeah. So more assisting the driver, not necessarily replacing the driver. Is that a fair statement? Correct. Okay. Last question. What's the biggest surprise that you've had by when doing this, looking at rolling out EVs across the Pepsi network? What's the biggest thing that surprised you the most?
1: Uh, I think that one of the biggest surprises for me is the overall acceptance, being in the field, being around trucking, change management, I think is one of the hardest things to overcome. Sure. And with EVs, sometimes there's a lot of change, sometimes there's a little bit of change, but it's typically been a change from what our drivers, our warehouses, and our mechanics have dealt with in the past. And so due to the amount of change from infrastructure going in, from having to plug the vehicles in, from the maintenance, from the driving of the vehicles, I've been really surprised at how receptive the field and our frontline teams have been uh, as we've deployed these vehicles. Once we get them out there, it's very hard to get them out of these vehicles. And I, I assume there's no plan to convert back
0: to CG combustion engine, right? You once you go, you're you're there, right? Correct. And so I'm I'm curious what which of the of the different stakeholders that are involved, the drivers, the people who own the facilities, maintenance, the customers, which are the biggest cheerleaders that want it to happen, which are the biggest I'm going to say obstacles, but I mean that are more hesitant to change. So are the cheerleaders first? Who
1: are the biggest cheerleaders that want this? Besides yourself, of course. That's a good question. I think probably our biggest cheerleaders have been our drivers. Okay. I mean, in general, it's everybody likes getting a new truck, so getting a new truck is a big benefit as well, but also getting one that's smoother, quieter. Uh, a lot of our drivers that are in very urban environments, like in Queens, New York, not having to go get gas, even in a step van or a small delivery van, that could save you an hour of time. And now when you get back, all you do is plug it in and walk away and you're done. So I think they've probably been the biggest cheerleaders of the success of EVs and in these very urban environments where they fit very well. We do try to put the vehicles, you know, based on the route structure. We obviously can't tell you a hundred mile vehicle, but on a 120 mile route, at least today. Right. Uh, now, optimistically, in the future, as we see more public and retail availability and infrastructure, um, hopefully we can extend the extend range of some of these vehicles on our longer routes by leveraging some of that publicly available infrastructure in addition to our own infrastructure. Got it. All
0: right. Well, Adam, I learned a lot. I, I really appreciate it. Thanks for being candid. I think you're on the forefront of what a lot of companies are going to do, whether it's due to regulations that are coming state by state or whether it just makes sense to achieve goals for zero admission. Appreciate it. Thanks for talking with me today.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me Chris. Appreciate it. It's always good to catch up.
0: Yeah, this is great. All right, everyone, stay tuned for Truckload Market updates. This is the market update for February 8th, 2024. For Dryvan, we saw contract rates drop 0.1%, spot rates rise 2%, and the current level of replacement rates is negative 8.5%, which means new contract rates coming in on an RFP are replacing the retiring rates, and they're about 8.5% lower on average. For Temp Control, we saw the contract rates drop 2%, while spot rates rose 0.5%, and the current level of replacement rates for temp control is negative 5.1%. For intermodal, we saw the contract rates drop 3.1%, and spot rates drop the same amount, negative 3.3%. We found the replacement rates for intermodal to be negative 3.7%. And finally, for flatbed, we saw the active rates drop 0.1%, the spot rates rise 2.7%, and we saw the current replacement rates of flatbed to be negative 6.3%. So the big takeaways from this is that all the modes had slight drops in their contract rates, and most modes, except intermodal, had increases in spot rates. We did see this blip in spot rates where we're thinking it might be more of a trend than just a signal, than just noise, but we'll, we'll keep our eyes on it. Replacement rates were, are still negative. We found that flatbeds reporting negative 12.8 last time period we reported was a blip. And with new data coming in, that kind of got that smoothed out. So right now it's a more reasonable negative 6.3%. Still negative, still seeing savings if you run an RFP, but the negative 12 was kind of a early data blip. And the gap between spot and contract rates for dry van and temp control is continuing to close. It's now $0.09 per mile for dry van and $0.04 a mile for flatbed. So it's starting to close. We're not quite there, but we're seeing on the national long haul averages that spot rates are approaching contract rates. And the last thing I want to say is diesel prices rose slightly to three eighty nine a gallon, still $0.64 cents a gallon cheaper than it was a year ago. All right, that's the Truckload Market Update. Take care. Well, that wraps up this episode of The Freight Find. The Freight Find podcast is hosted by myself, Chris Kaplis, and is produced and edited by DATIQ. For more information or to hear previous episodes, please visit our website at dat.com podcasts. You can subscribe to The Freight Find wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, be sure to give us a review. As always, if you have any feedback or questions about what you've heard on The Freight Find or suggestions for what you'd like to hear in the future, send an email to me at chris.caplis at dat.com. Finally, from all of us at The Freight Find, Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed it and learned something new.